my message is if you've seen one person with dementia you've seen one person every person with dementia is a different person they have different past different present and different futures and if you understand those three you can actually help them silver adventures is a content and technology company dedicated to improving the lives of older adults through immersive virtual reality experiences And this podcast is our opportunity to hear from industry experts, thought leaders, and passionate individuals to share with you their knowledge, expertise, and experiences. Welcome to the Aged Care Enrichment Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Ashton Eve. I'm your host, and each week we're exploring how we can improve the quality of life for older adults receiving care. Throughout the past two seasons of the show, we've had quite a few guests talking about the challenges of dementia and what can be done to provide supportive care for those living with it. And today's episode is about finding new horizons in dementia care. It focuses on two different approaches in the UK that are having positive impacts on the period of diagnosis and life with dementia. So we're breaking up the episode into two parts. The first part will focus on some brand new technology that's increasing the speed and accuracy of Alzheimer's diagnoses. And the second will look at how a community-led approach can transform the everyday experiences for people living with dementia. First up is Dr. Tim Rittman from the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Cambridge. Tim is working alongside his colleague, Professor Zoe Kurtzy on an AI program that uses brain scans to predict whether somebody will develop Alzheimer's and how fast the disease will progress. Quickly, before we get into it, we're keeping an eye open for great stories and guests for our third season starting in 2022. If there's a guest you'd love to hear from or a topic that we haven't covered yet, let us know. You can email us through acepodcast at silveradventures.com.au. That's A-C-E podcast. Anyway, that's enough for now. Here's our interview with Dr. Tim Ritten. Tim, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Oh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, our, our pleasure. And uh, people can probably tell from your accent that you're not an Australian. You're calling in from the UK today. I am indeed. <laughs> Could you fill us in uh, on who you are and the work that you do? Yeah, so my name's Tim Rittman. I'm a neurologist um, in uh, Cambridge in the UK, Addenbrooke's Hospital, and specialising in cognitive disorders. So I'm part of the memory clinic. Uh, and I run a clinic for dementia and genetics and one for sort of rare types of dementia. But I'm also uh, an academic as well. So I do two days of clinical work and three days of research. And my research is around sort of understanding how some of the tau-associated dementias progress through the brain using neuroimaging and computational analysis. And also, I think more relevant for today, um, some sort of translational work, taking artificial intelligence and machine learning models and putting them into practice in the memory clinic. Awesome. Lots of meaty things to dig into there. Now, you said tower models, was it, of, of dementia? Yeah. So uh, if you look at um, dimensions that are under the bonnet in the brain, different proteins um, aggregate and, and um, cause problems in the brain. And one of those is tau. Um, so tau builds up in Alzheimer's disease alongside beta amyloid. Mm-hmm. But there's also this other sets of diseases which are just pure tauopathies, so frontotemporal dementia, some forms of that. I look at uh, two diseases called progressive supranuclear palsy and corticovasal degeneration, where tau builds up. Holy so moly. yeah, a bit of a mouthful, <laughs> PSP and CBD for short. Um, so they're yeah. relatively rare, but there's a way to, from an academic point of view, we can look at tau on its own without beta amyloid or some of these other proteins. 
Okay, so this is a way of classifying different types of dementia that are, and the way that they manifest in the brain. Exactly, yeah, looking at the pathology particularly. Yeah. Cool. And and we came to, to know your work through uh, a study that you're leading at Cambridge, looking at the, the use of AI in diagnosing dementia or various types of dementia. Can you tell us a bit about that study? Yeah, certainly. So um, I'm leading the clinical side of that. Um, and what we're trying to do is uh, you translate some of this academic work, which has been going on for some time. There's lots of different AI machine learning models which have been applied in the sort of preclinical research world, but actually bringing those into, into the clinic. So, so a colleague of mine based here in, in Cambridge called uh, Zoe Kurtzy is a professor in the psychology department, and she's trained this uh, machine learning model on sort of thousands of um, scans of people with Alzheimer's disease and particularly mild cognitive impairment, that sort of early stage of Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. And in the preclinical um, phase, we're able to predict pretty well who goes on to develop Alzheimer's disease and how quickly they're, uh, they're going to uh, progress. So my role in, is to then to bring that into the memory clinic. Um, so I've set up a study called quantitative MRI in NHS memory clinics or QMIN-MC for short. You've got to, got to have a, a catchy abbreviation. <laughs> so, yeah. And what we do is, is scan everyone who comes through the memory clinic who needs a scan as part of their sort of clinical investigations. Instead of having a standard NHS scan, they come into our research scanner um, and we have a slightly longer scan, so a few extra sequences. But we use all the sequences that are used both in the clinical um, side of re- reporting the scan and these extra uh, research scans as a database of scans to test and develop these artificial in- intelligence machine learning algorithms. So Zoe's machine learning algorithm uses a, a structural MRI brain scan. So it's a fairly simple scan in many ways, what we normally look at to determine Alzheimer's disease or look for other causes of, of cognitive problems. It takes that structural scan and looks for patterns that we can't see with the naked eye, mm-hmm. combines that with cognitive tests, and then gives a, a prediction of whether this is you know, someone with Alzheimer's disease, someone with you know, MCI that's going to progress, and um, how quickly that's going to change. So how, quick, how quickly people are moving away from a normal pattern towards a, an Alzheimer's disease pattern. So at the moment, we're at the stage of having done the preclinical testing mm-hmm. and we're putting it into the um, the clinic. So that's, I think, why it got picked up by the newspapers because it's, it's quite unusual for these things actually to, <laughs> to reach the real world. So that's what we're, we're doing next. Awesome. So I'm going to try and explain it just for myself as well in, in quite um, simple terms, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's kind of a, it's a computer program that will assess a bunch of data based on patterns and you're actually harnessing people in the community who come in for normal scans using their data to help train the machine to get better at recognizing Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Partly to train it to get better, but also to see whether it works Mm -hmm. um, as it is. So we've already trained it on this preclinical data to see if that training in the preclinical data actually works in the real world. Um, Because often what you find is research cohorts are very highly selected. There's lots of exclusion criteria. Mm -hmm. We have no exclusion criteria. If you can get in an MRI scanner, you're in our study. (laughs) So we have people with strokes, with brain tumors, with no dementia, with depression, you know, lots of comorbidities. Can our algorithm work as well in that cohort as it did in that sort of preclinical study? Cool. Okay. So I guess underlying all of this is the, it's an assumption that there is an image of the brain that's quite consistent for people who are going to exhibit symptoms of dementia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so under the bullet, what this machine learning algorithm does is, is define a, a sort of pattern that looks like normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the pattern that looks like disease. At the moment, it's trained on Alzheimer's disease, but the plan is to go on and train on, say, vascular dementia or dementia with Lewy bodies 
and pick out particular features within the scan that we can't necessarily see as humans, but that we can pick out those combinations of features that are disease-like. So you can then tell, yeah, firstly, does someone look more like the normal pattern or do they look more like a, a disease pattern? Mm-hmm. And then how fast are they moving from the normal pattern towards the, the disease pattern? So it gives you the idea of diagnosis and prognosis, essentially. Gotcha. Okay. And with the small cognitive tests that you're doing as well, is that to sort of verify what the scan is showing or is that additional data that's part of the study? It's um, additional data that's part of the study. So that feeds into the algorithm as well, Mm -hmm. but also it's the outcome. What we're predicting against is longitudinal change in cognitive scores. Gotcha. So how people's cognition changes over time. Okay. So you'll check in with the participants a bit later and run the same tests and measure. Exactly. Yeah, they'll come back to clinic. You know, it's uh, six months, nine months, a year, and we'll collect that data as well to see how well the model is performing. Cool. So th- this might be a silly question, but in traditional diagnosis of dementia, is neuroimaging used, or is it mainly a, a symptomatic sort of approach? Yeah, it is. You can make a diagnosis of dementia without Im- any imaging at all. That does happen. That's possible. Um, Traditionally, the main role for neuroimaging has been to exclude other reasons for cognitive impairment. So you might be looking for strokes or for inflammation or for sort of brain tumours and other sort of unexpected things. More and more, we're starting to use imaging to look for positive patterns that are associated with dementias. So classically in Alzheimer's disease, you look for parietal atrophy, so volume loss at the back of the brain Mm -hmm. and hippocampal atrophy in the sort of memory parts of the brain. So if you see that pattern, you think, well, that does look like Alzheimer's disease. But it's, it's not 100%. There are some people, certainly you made diagnoses of people who have pretty normal looking scans um, and other people have horrible looking scans, but actually they're performing quite well. So they don't have any mm. you know, cognitive impairment. So so it's, neuroimaging is useful and it's starting to be used more. Um, but I think some of these more complex ways of looking at the imaging will hopefully give us more information, which is a bit more accurate than just sort of looking at the scan and squinting a bit and saying, oh, it looks a bit like Alzheimer's disease. <laughs> Right. Okay. So this is a much more high tech version than not. You're not holding the X-ray up to the light and looking for something. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's really getting in there deep. Exactly. We're trying to move on a little bit from that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So how would this translate into if you're working in a, a residential care facility or you're a geriatrician or you know how does this translate into real world diagnosis? Yeah, I think that's a key question, isn't it? And so we're certainly not looking to replace any of the sort of memory clinic services and you know the classic sort of history examination and cognitive tests, which are, are used for diagnosis now. But what we're hoping to do is get as much information as we can out of the data that we have. So out of the neuroimaging data that we, and the cognitive tests that we have, can we squeeze every bit of information from that we can? So how I see this working is you you see someone in the, in the clinic um, you think, well, you know, is, could this be Alzheimer's disease? They may have sort of early memory problems and you get a result from this, this algorithm, which may give you some more confidence in saying, yeah, this is Alzheimer's disease now. Mm. And that helps you have firstly discussions around treatment. So, so when to start you know, cholinesterase inhibitors at the moment, but also forward planning as well. So if you can, at the moment, we can't really give people a good idea of prognosis. Right. So we can say, yeah, you've got say dementia with Lewy bodies, that tends on the whole to progress a bit more quickly than Alzheimer's disease, but that's about as far as we can get. We can't individualize that. Mm-hmm. So what we're hoping to do is identify people who are going to stay stable, people who will decline at a moderate rate, and then people who will decline more rapidly. So we can target uh, those people who are changing more rapidly to have early interventions you know, to prevent uh, admissions to nursing homes mm-hmm. if they don't want to go, uh, admissions to hospital. So in that way, we're hoping to, to save some money for the, for the health service with this as well. 
that's probably more important than that is actually enable people to to plan ahead. Okay, cool. And, and just to clarify, the, the way that it's kind of predicting is by taking two snapshots in time and seeing how quickly it's moved between deterioration in those two? It's just it's just using a baseline scan. So it's just okay. one scan, one cognitive test when you first meet the patient. Yeah. And then it would use that to make a prediction of what's going to happen in the next few years. Okay, because judging like based on other factors then and, and the cognitive test will then come into that as well. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, I mean, that really ties into something that we hear a lot we've spoken to um, a couple of different dementia advocates on on the program over in Australia's Kate Swaffer and Christine Bryden and they've both talked about their experience of being diagnosed being a really traumatic and unsupportive event and it was basically what they were told was get your life in order stop doing things go home because it's going to get bad very quick and 15 20 years later they're still doing really well so this could be something that would change that post-diagnosis journey for people. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think um, you know, it can be very tricky, particularly if you've got a, a rare form of dementia or if you've got early onset dementia, that process of diagnosis can be you know, 18 months or a couple of years in, in, in some cases. Mm-hmm. And that's a really tough time to have that uncertainty. So if we can give people more certainty with these uh, machine learning techniques, I, I think that's a really good thing to, to be able to do. And yeah, certainly there's a lot of debate about you know, sort of psychiatric, psychiatric comorbidities and functional memory loss and things like that, which often get misdiagnosed as dementia. So you have these people who are mm-hmm. have some memory symptoms, but actually that doesn't change over a long period of time. And they fall into that sort of functional memory disorder sort of category. And if we can pick up those people and reassure them and say, well, this isn't going to you know, change over the next few years as a, as a dementia um, would, um, I, think, I think that would really change people's lives and, and avoid that misdiagnosis that we sometimes see. Yeah, that's great. And I think for, for some listeners of the show, they'll know that I, I sometimes express some skepticism towards new technology. Absolutely. <laughs> when we're talking about AI that can diagnose, how accurate is accurate enough? What, what sort of parameters do we need to work in there? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really key um, question. I and mean, I think there's, there's two answers to that. Firstly, what is as accurate as possible? Um, and I think every test that we use in you know, clinically has a false positive and false negative r- rate, which means you know, it's not right the whole time. Mm-hmm. And we, we want something to be you know over 90% accurate would be a, what we're looking for, ideally. Having said that, I think the most important thing is knowing how accurate something is. So in some sense, it doesn't matter if it's not right all the time, as long as we know how often it's wrong, yeah. if that makes sense, and how it's wrong as well. So it's not just knowing, not just having a really accurate test, but knowing how accurate it is and in what context it uh, it works. So that's something we're, we're going to have to work through. Um, you know, it's, this is why it's easy in the research world when you've got this sort of yeah. training data set. Oh, yeah, well, we can predict this with 80 90% accuracy. Actually, it's different than when you bring it into the clinic and all these other variables and confounders come into the equation. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like when you've got an old car and you know that, oh, in order to get the start, I have to jiggle the keys just this way. And <laughs> you, when you're working with the tool, as long as you know what makes it work and what the best sort of scenario, then it's it's going to be a good thing to use. Exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a good analogy. I like that. So because this sort of technology is possible because you have access to some very specific data through neuroimaging. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, whilst that's the, the power that allows us this system to develop it's also a hindrance in that it keeps it within the box of the neuroimaging right and for in order for it to get to the next stage we need to be collecting data that's observable outside of is it mri you said it's the main yeah screening do you see any sort of progression and i know you're still in the middle of this study i don't want to get you too 
focused on the future, but do you see anything like with other data that can be collected outside of an MRI? Yeah, certainly. I mean, there's some um, big efforts to, to try and do that. So there's the um, Eden project, which actually my collaborator Zoe Kurtz is quite involved in, uh, which is taking a whole range of different, more sort of real life measures, things like wearable technology to try and pick up early signs of, of, of dementia. And there's a little bit of evidence of things like gait and sleep and things might be mm. early. If we can pick up some of those, there might be early indicators of, um, of cognitive problems. So I think that's certainly still in its infancy. And I probably see that uh, those sort of tools as almost screening. So if there's some concerns, you can you know, put a watch on and wear it for a few weeks and mm. see what the data says. But then you're still going to need to go through that sort of memory clinic assessment um, later on to to make a more formal diagnosis. But I think that's really it's a really interesting area. So uh, we'll probably hear more about that in the next few years. I think that, that sort of particularly that Eden project gathers more data. Yeah, earlier this year we spoke to uh, Dr. Andrew McKinnon, who was working with Race Against Dementia. And he was doing a research project on sleep-wake disturbances and how they are a symptom of, or they can be a sign that you're heading towards dementia later in life and possibly developing a wearable. So that, that really ties in there. Yeah. You nodded as if you, you know, Andrew. I've, I, I know the name. Yeah. I don't know him personally, but I know his yeah. work. So yeah, I think it's, a, and sleep is a really interesting area in dementia. It's, uh, we've, there's lots of, we've still got to learn about sleep. Mm. So I think it's very promising. Yeah. So although you know, I work in neuroimaging, I, I think all of these areas are, are really developing quite quickly. So it'd be really interesting to see how it all ties together. And as I think you're sort of suggesting at the beginning, actually a combination of all of these measures might be the, the most important, uh, the, the most useful uh, sort of test rather than just any one on, its, uh, on their own. Mm. Um, you know, blood, blood tests are coming along as well. And we've been talking about that recently, whether they're ready to put into our clinic yet. Yeah, they're probably not quite there at, at the moment, but very close to, mm -hmm. we're very close to having those. And that's probably going to change how we interpret neuroimaging and how we look at these you know, AI models as well. Do we tie in the, the results from the blood tests into these, to these models to make them more accurate? So yeah, so we're going to have to be aware of these other technologies coming along and how they tie in and can help us. Yeah. Tim, this is, this has been great. I think where can people find out more about what you're doing and, and the study? Yeah, so I'm in the process of setting up a website at the, about the study at the moment, so it's not quite there at the moment. Mm -hmm. But by the time we release, it'll be ready. I, I hope so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you can search for me. My name's Tim Rittman on the Department of Clinical Neurosciences pages at the University of Cambridge. And you know, drop me an email if you'd like to, to know more about it. Um, I'm also on Twitter, Tim Rittman. Look out for me there. Awesome. Tim, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks a lot. A big thanks to Dr. Tim Rittman for his time. Coming up after the break, we're talking to Ian Sheriff, who's been leading efforts throughout an astounding number of organisations in the UK, including the University of Plymouth, to shape supportive and enabling communities for people living with dementia. Some of the fantastic work he's done has involved doctors and dentist surgeries, airlines and airports, 10,000 parishes across the UK and rural communities in Devon. Whilst technology such as Tim's research will be instrumental in changing the experience of people living with dementia, so too will community-led and relationship-based efforts like those of Ian Sheriff. And that's coming up after this quick message. This episode is sponsored by Ending Loneliness Together. I just felt a sadness inside. I've never spoken to anyone about feeling lonely. I've never spoken to my, my family. I think I always try to show I'm well, especially to the kids. They'd never imagine that I felt lonely. 
Over 5 million Australians are lonely. While we all feel lonely from time to time, longer periods of loneliness are damaging to our health and well-being. Ending Loneliness Together is a national Australian charity with the vision to halve chronic loneliness by 2030. We all have a role to play in ending loneliness. Consider making a donation, becoming a member, or sharing your story with others. Go to www.endingloneliness.com.au for more information. Ian, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Uh, lovely to lovely to be with you, and uh, a big hello to everybody over in Australia. So uh, nice to be with you all. Absolutely, great to have you here with us. And uh, maybe you can give our Australian listeners some background to to the work that you do. I'm Ian Sheriff. I'm the academic partnership lead for dementia in the University of Plymouth's medical school. So I research and lecture to our students. So we're the university where all our medical students have a modular on their teaching to do with dementia because we're very keen that they have an understanding of dementia when they're out there in the field. And not only that, we've set up a program called Time for Dementia where medical students will spend at least three days uh, in the home of somebody with dementia throughout their time with us at the university. So that's what I do within the university. Uh, Outside it, I chair the Prime Minister's Rural Dementia Group, and uh, we've done a lot of work there in engaging with all the uh, different facets of rural communities to uh, up their game and understand and how they can work better with people living with dementia and their families, to the extent where we've engaged with the 10,000 town and parish councils in England and written a dementia guide for them, but we can talk about that later. Uh, I chair the Prime Minister's Air Transport Group for dementia, but that's also for hidden disabilities. And uh, in the last four years, we've changed all the legislation around our airports here in the United Kingdom so that they are uh, hidden disability aware. And we can talk about that again in a second. I uh, chair the the Dementia Alliance in Plymouth. So that's over 100 companies. And we very nicely, or whatever the word is, we are awarded Dementia Friendly City of the Year. Um, I also chair the uh, global group on dementia and i'm a member of the prime minister's dementia challenge group which is myself angela rippon and uh, about eight other people etc etc so that's me that's so that's what i do on monday and tuesday <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're a uh, an interviewer's delight then there's, there's about 50 different directions we could take the conversation but maybe taking it back to the start and talking about your work at plymouth university and, and the sort of approach that's going on there it sounds like there was an identified gap that medical professionals were entering the field without enough experience or practice in dealing with patients who have dementia. Is that correct? Yeah, um, you're right. My career hasn't always been in academia. For the first 25 years, I was in the fleet air arm and played with aeroplanes and actually visited Australia on, uh, I think it was um, Art Royal or HMS Eagle. Had a wonderful time. Uh, So thank you for that. (laughs) That was way back in the 60s. And then at 40, I thought I'd better get a proper job and I went to university. And then I started to look at research around early onset dementia and won some money to do that. But the gap was identified when I got in there. And I was then asked to go and join the medical school. 
And not only do I teach doctors, nurses, paramedics, and midwives, but also dentists, because we found that dentists are very good position to actually start to understand and also identify early onset dementia. And so we've written a guide. We've just uh, completed it. And that's going to go out, I hope, to every dentist uh, practice in the country, in England. It's very basic stuff. It's about saying, you know, how the design of your surgery, is it welcoming? Do you understand the person? Can you make the person feel at, at ease? You can imagine if you have a dementia and you lost your memory is really about, could be of ages ago when you went to the dentist and, you know, gas and air and all those awful things. And uh, what we asked is that could they do a familiarization to the dentist? And when they're there, can the dentist take time to explain? You know, it's COVID. Everybody's walking around with masks on and it mm. does seem to inhibit things. So when you think that's what looking at a dentist is like from the chair and he's got a great big drill in his hand and he's going to put mm. it in your mouth, that is quite frightening. And it's even more frightening for a person living with dementia. So we, we've covered all those topics in the guide and uh, how they can design their dental uh, surgeries. Interestingly enough, when teaching the dentist, we identified with them a project last year and uh, the dental students worked for a year, obviously on all their studies, but also on this dental uh, dementia project. And they designed a, a walkthrough video of what they thought was a, a first-class dental surgery in design. Hmm. Uh, the, the UK director for Henry Shrine, who are uh, a dental manufacturers and also design dental surgeries, came, saw it, liked it, and those students, their, their thoughts and ideas are going to be implemented into the new structures and new way of designing dental surgeries. So hmm. young minds, young thoughts, uh, young ideas of changing uh, the way the world is towards dementia and i i was really pleased from that that getting that done and the guide reflects their work and also gives them credit for all they've done yeah that's fantastic and tying into the the guide that you mentioned there for dentists you've mentioned that you've prepared a guide for the national association of local councils over ten thousand councils and shires yeah. shires sorry in, in the uk yeah, yeah. and i saw a picture of you with with angela ripon who was also on the show and the prime yeah. minister boris johnson yeah can you tell us a bit about the guide that you're putting together there yeah we were invited to go and see him just uh before christmas well, when you consider we had covid everything going on we had a one-to-one -one with him in the garden of number 10 and uh there were no spads with us so it was just us three and he was very knowledgeable uh, about the world of dementia and i said to him look i've got ten thousand parish councillors that we've done a project we did a to get to where we were with the parish councils and town councils i ran a project here in rural devon where five parish councillors came together and said we'll work together on the world of dementia in our rural communities so they nominated a person on each council to be their sort of dementia lead, employ a worker and a, a support worker. And between that support worker and the worker themselves, they're supporting 68 families of somebody living with dementia. And that can be running groups. So they run not just groups for people with dementia. I'm a, I'm a very great believer of integration, not separation. Mm -hmm. So the individual groups have people who have dementia and those who don't 
and they go walking, singing. They have a reading group, a poetry group, uh, a keep fit group. You name it, and they're doing it. And I think that's the way forward. And we did a quick research on dementia in the farming community. It was no different than other communities, but what was different was their reluctance to come near a GP or a doctor. You know, it'll get better, and oh well, that's that's life. And we found some quite sad stories where a lone working farmer, his wife had dementia, and he used to have to take her in the tractor with him every morning, and uh, rather than leave her at home where she would wander. Um, to another gentleman who had dementia, and his son came over to see him. And inside his very complicated tractor, he had post-it notes where all the different levers were, what they were meant for. Mm. Anyhow, so we've raised this the game there. And the young farmers, who are very much part of this task, we're going to start running sort of farmers markets, etc., you know, awareness mm -hmm. uh, of dementia stuff. So it's rural communities. It's everything. It's the local post office. It's the local shop. I, I went to America for eight weeks and i didn't i live in a rural community i came back i didn't tell the local um post office where i'd been and when i came back she said uh, did you enjoy a holiday i said yes she said what was new york like so it's great mm. and then she said what was Chicago like oh it's great and she went through my whole itinerary and i said how the hell did you know that she said oh, i looked at your postcards mm. so they are a mind of information they can be a source of great knowledge to understand what's going on in their communities. So you can see when you engage all these people, get them all to work together, you can actually have a really integrated world for people living with dementia. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And that kind of leads on to my next question there about a lot of the work that you do is amongst the community and is about raising awareness. Could you maybe speak a bit more to the sorts of things that you'd like to see come out of this work and, and the sort of world that you'd like to, to move towards? Okay, well, when I first started, I remember talk, what, what drove me to do this was talking to a family who's had a member who was living with dementia. It was her husband. And she said, you know, nobody knows about dementia and not only that they don't give a damn about us mm. and we're just left on our own so it was taking that as the starting point and raising the awareness and i just think i mean i'm not asking people to go and knock on the door and say hey do you want something mm. but if you're aware of it you can also say well look how can we help and that came to the fore during the pandemic and i expect it's the same in Australia, our communities came together, people did shopping, people did messages, they checked on people. One of the most powerful things in a rural community is the postman, mm -hmm. because you'll know if somebody's not collecting or is not well or what have you. So they can be early indicators of what's going on. And, you know, it's really lovely to live in a community which is I'm not saying nosy, but can be supportive. And so that's what I was looking for. And not only in communities, in shops, uh, in businesses. And that's why I, the air travel thing, I mean, it, it, that's the same concept. You know, if people understand that people are aware, then they, they can help and support and makes life a lot better for the person living with dementia and their family. But do you know what? It feels quite good when you've done a good deed every day, doesn't it? So mm. you know, there's a knock-on effect for everybody here. Absolutely. And with the Dementia Air Transport Group, 
Can you maybe share with us some of the things that some of the ideas and programs that you're putting into place for the, the air transport degree? That was given to me out of the blue. Angela Rippon said, we need to have an air transport group for dementia and hidden disability. So off you go. So I had nothing but a pencil. Um, what I did, I I got people like uh, a doctor, an OT, mm-hmm. people living with dementia and their families. I got pilots, uh, cabin crew, airport staff, ground crew, the people who work on the support networks in um, airports. So they were on the group. What we did, we designed a process where we started from leaving home, getting to the airport, going through the airport, getting on the aircraft, getting off the aircraft at the other end. Mm -hmm. And through that, we wanted a supportive program or network. Um, The reason I think it it took off so well was because one of the lines I took was there are 850,000 people living with dementia in the UK. And why should they stop traveling because of their dementia? They should be able to, with support, be able to go uh, and travel. With that concept, everybody on that group started to chip in how we can do things. An example of one person who, who was really upset, they traveled to the airport. This is before we changed everything. And they got to security with their dad, who was going on holiday with him. He had dementia. He'd lost some weight. So at the security thing, they said, take your belt off. And the daughter said, can I hold my dad's trousers? He's lost a bit of weight. He said, no, step back. He's got to go through this, the magic, um, you know, detect. Mm -hmm. So he went through and his trousers fell down and he cried. He had an outburst. He, He just went into, you know awful for him and they didn't go on holiday Mm. and that was all not because the security guy was being sort of officious but it was because that's what he was told to do Mm -hmm. so we had to change that you know how do you do how does a person go through the um, magic system who has dementia and it's not saying they don't go through it but they have to be supported to go through it also when they arrive at the airport um we actually thought there's got to be some way they've got to be identified and we started off with a sunflower lanyard, and I think you might have it in Australia. And so it's just a green lanyard with a sunflower on. Mm-hmm. And everybody on the airport staff, and now it's in shops, businesses all around the United Kingdom. So it's traveling well. There are thousands, of, well, millions of them. And what it means to the airport staff is I have a, a disability, a hidden disability, and I will need assistance. Mm-hmm. And so that came out of it. So what we managed to achieve was people arrive at the airport who have a hidden disability. They're, they will get uh, supported through assisted through the airport. They will get assisted through the security. They will then go to a quiet lounge should they need, need to, and then be assisted to go on the aircraft either first or go on last, whichever. The airport thing is ongoing because we keep revisiting. We're going to write a guide now to go out to every individual who has a hidden disability that they can access online to see what they um, can expect. We also asked airports to uh, run awareness sessions. So if I'm going to fly in a month's time, that I go up with my family member who who has a hidden disability and we walk through the system. So, you know, we're getting there and I think we've done exceptionally well to get a debate in the House of Commons, to get some outcomes from that, to get the CAA to 
do what they've done and also the airports getting their act together on hidden disabilities. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it makes it clear that in every sort of aspect of, of normal life, we need to have some sort of consideration for people who are living with dementia or a hidden disability. And before this conversation, I may not have even thought of, of air transport as something that we need to really think about the steps for, but that really highlights that in every aspect, we need something. Ian, we've covered a lot and uh, I feel like there's so much to unpack here. Do you want to talk about anything specifically before we, we start to wrap it up? I think just the general thing is to say dementia is on the increase. We know that. It's around the globe. It's one of the biggest things to hit the planet. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's costing billions and billions of pounds uh, to support people either with health or social care. And we do know that once you've had your diagnosis, the road that you're going to go down with is pretty well plotted. Uh, and there are key points where health and social care, the communities, et cetera, et cetera, can get involved and supportive. So my message is if you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen one person. Mm. Every person with dementia is a different person. They have different past, different present, and different futures. And if you understand those three, you can actually help them. And um, I can give you a quick story. Yeah, please. I went to a hospital the other week. And there was a lady in the corner, a uh, 96-year-old, and coming from the aircraft world all those years ago, I still run outside and look at aeroplanes when I see them fly over. Mm-hmm. I still get a kick out of that. And uh, I n- recognized this very elderly lady in the corner. And um, I said to the young nurse, who's that? She's all Mrs. Hang on, I'll, we'll go over. And so I said, come with me a second. And I just knelt down beside her and I said, her name was Den. I said, Den, mm. what's it like to hear four Rolls-Royce engines purring away? And her face lit up. She didn't communicate, but I touched a button there. Mm. And I said to the nurse, you know, that lady at the end of the Second World War was flying Lancasters, Spitfires. She was a ferry pilot. Wow. And I said, well, you don't, not everybody's a ferry pilot or what have you, but if you understand people's past, you can make connections with them if they are on their world of dementia. So, you know, it's just about being human with each other. I think we live in a funny old world at the moment, which is so fast, so quick, that we suddenly, we realise, gosh, these are real people who have feelings, emotions. Good to reflect on that sometimes, I think, in the crazy world we're living in. Absolutely. And uh, I really like that quote, if you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen one person. Yeah. It's a nice way to wrap it all up. Yeah, yeah. Ian, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great. Lovely talking to you, Ash, as well. You take care. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Age Care Enrichment Podcast, brought to you by Silver Adventures. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're enjoying it, please leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. If you're interested in finding out how immersive virtual reality experiences can enrich the lives of older adults, visit the Silver Adventures website today at www.silveradventures.com.au. See you next week.